welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for taking the time to join us today and for continuing to turn to us for market insights and investment guidance through this unprecedented time. My name is Josh Sorry, and I'll be your host for the next 45 minutes to an hour. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by my colleagues, Steve Lear and Rick Figley. Steve is the CIO for the U.S. Rick is the head of our core strategy, both on our global fixed income currency and commodities platform. Guys, a lot has been made about the death of the 60-40, and it's not equities that are in the crosshairs. In fact, the new 60-40 is contemplated to be 60% traditional investments, largely equities, and 40% alternatives. Fixed income doesn't come out well in that trade. So here's my question. With the 10-year at 70 basis points and the 30-year right around 140, are they right? So, Josh, and Rick, and we don't believe so. When you think about your portfolio overall, you still need to have your balance in your portfolio. If you think about what's happened with equities here, and we'll just take the current environment, equities being at literally all-time highs, you know, markets don't go in one direction forever. At some point in time, there's going to be a pullback. Related to the current environment also, you have equities trading in the anticipation that there is going to be a vaccine widely distributed in the first quarter. To me, there's a lot more uncertainty that than what equities currently are showing. So there is the potential that equities could really pull back. And then what do you have? You have a fixed income portfolio that is still going to perform with a positive return. Now, the other side of this, too, is that fixed income is not the 10-year. So when you think about broad markets portfolios, you're going to have somewhere between double to, depending on the portfolio, maybe even triple the yield of what the 10-year is. And so that gives you a lot more room than what a lot of these stories that have been written about and that refer to being just the 10-year treasury at 70 basis points. So we still think that there is definite room in a portfolio for fixed income. Yeah, so you took the words out of my mouth. At 70 basis points, there's not a lot of room for the 10-year to provide additional ballast, but it is our ability to go across sectors within fixed income that help that trade. Steve, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I think that we tend to think of things in terms of their sharp ratio, and I expect over the course of the conversation we'll talk more about this, but we believe that with the Fed supporting bond markets and controlling borrowing costs for Americans, The downside in owning most intermediate or shorter duration bonds is pretty small. And with inflation very, very low, thanks to the slack in the economy, you can still generate a real return with a decent degree of certainty in the bond markets relative to an expected higher return in stock markets, yes, but with a lot more volatility. So, gentlemen, passive for free is a drumbeat in the background. Everybody thinks we should be able to do this for no margin. What has the pandemic done to disprove that? And Rick, you alluded to it a minute ago, but are you finding opportunities to invest opportunistically across market segments or even, you know, bond-specific opportunities? And how would you rate the opportunity set today versus the historic through-market opportunity? Let me grab Uh, that one if I can. Sure. Sorry, Rick, if you don't mind. I have both active and passive equities in my portfolio, but in my bond portfolio, it's 100% active. 
you know, it's almost impossible, literally, to be indexed in the bond market with something on the order of 8 million QCIPs in the U.S. when you think about mortgage pools in particular. So there is a lot of inefficiency in the bond markets. And unlike equities, where managers have not had a stellar track record of outperforming indices, the record for bond managers in general, and us in particular, is pretty good at beating the Barclays aggregate after fees. So I'm not a believer in passive, even for free, active management after fees beats it. And, you know, you talked about the pandemic. The experience that we had in the spring of this year just proves that. You know, we saw bonds that we feel were worth 100 cents on the dollar, trading at 70 cents on the dollar. Brand names like Coca-Cola coming at 250 spread over the five-year treasury. If you were actively managing your portfolios, there were lots of opportunities, both in credit and securitized, to add value. So I'm not just talking my book. This is what I believe and how I invest money for myself and friends. Don't waste your time being passive in bonds. It's always good to have a conversation with somebody who's got an opinion. Thank you. <laughs> Couldn't find one, yeah, but you Rick, got me. <laughs> Rick, I heard you trying to jump in there as well. Did you have something you wanted to add? I think Steve really summed up that extremely well, so nothing yeah. to add. Okay. So next question, if we uh, tapped the Fed, right now there's an infusion of Fed money sitting on the market, a lot of third-party capital chasing that trade. Some of the programs they've announced they haven't even had to implement because so much private capital has gone that way in anticipation that it's kind of closed the gaps they were looking to close. So does that dampen opportunity? And I guess the other part of that question then is, is it too soon to look to the backside of that trade and think about how to be prudent positioning, expecting an unwind at some point? So when the Fed comes in, I always like to say that there is the law of unintended consequences. And I think that we are going to see that. Now, initially when the Fed comes in, and they've done a very good job of coming in and basically buying the broad index, But the broad index does not hold all bonds. So what they haven't bought is actually lagged, and it's lagged over the last several months. So it's not too soon, and it's definitely been something we've looked at over the last couple months and added to are bonds that trade inefficient to where the market is just based on the fact that they're not backstopped by the Fed. So the answer is there's plenty of opportunities out there, and we're taking advantage of them. Maybe part two to that question, Steve, I'd welcome you to jump in as well. But if the Fed is on the short end of the curve, what are the thoughts for the long end? I mean, obviously, we're still a high-yielding market. Does that keep pressure on the long end, or are there other influences we should be thinking about? I was laughing because 140 on the long bond, and yes, we are a high-yielding market. The short answer is yes. We believe at J.P. Morgan the Fed is definitely backstopping all borrowing costs whether it's mortgage borrowers, whether it's corporate borrowers, the U.S. government and states for that matter, in the short to intermediate part of the curve. I will say that we are less certain and, in fact, uncertain about the 30-year part of the curve, the longer part of the curve. You know, the Fed has learned from the experience in Japan where long rates have sunk so low that it's impossible for the insurance and pension community to meet its obligation to policyholders and pensioners. So we actually do believe that the Fed will keep rates anchored at zero, not negative, which has hurt the banking system in Europe, 
in the short end of the curve. And in the long end of the curve, we believe that there'll be more play. But given the stock of negative yielding debt that is available to come to the U.S. markets, we do think, Josh, the point you made is a good one, that it serves as an informal backstop to long rates here in the U.S. I'm glad you think that the point I made is a good one for a second there. When I experienced the silence, I thought that perhaps you were going to be upset. (laughs) (laughs) Well, 140 makes us a high-yielding market, as they said in The Wizard of Oz. What a world. What a world. (laughs) It's unbelievable. Okay, so switching to credit now. A lot's been made of all the high-profile bankruptcies in the press. But that said, there's got to be just a ton of distress behind the headlines. Are there mispricings today that we're seeing and looking to take advantage of where we think things are mispriced given the probability the market is signing to their demise? Well, so, Josh, I want to point out that, you know, I'm a investment-grade manager, and they're generally, unless there's fraud, you don't ever see investment-grade going straight to bankruptcy. It can be downgraded to high yield, so you have your fallen angels. Now, what that does is create an interesting dynamic a couple ways. Is One, there are trading opportunities that do happen. If you are an index manager and you happen to have a bond that gets downgraded, spreads typically will blow out and we'll see that. If you are a portfolio that actually can take a downgrade for a period of time, once that bond goes into the high yield index, prices generally get bid back up because they have to go the high-yield managers, high-yield index managers have to buy them. So there are opportunities from that standpoint, and it's not necessarily as far as making a lot of money, but if there happens to be a surprise downgrade, there are ways to mitigate that potential loss or to recover some of that initial downturn. So we are always looking to take advantage of things in the market. But once again, you know, bankruptcies is not something, at least on the investment grade side, that we've had to really worry about. So, Steve, you look across a wider range of bonds. What do you think? I think the thing that's, no pun intended, most distressing to us is the low recoveries we've seen on some high-yield defaults this year. We frequently talk about pennies on the dollar, but we've had some recoveries on high-yield bond defaults that are only a penny or two or three pennies. What that's meant for us is we've really been able to devote a lot of resources to separating out those issuers in high-yield who have the business model that can be a continuing success story once the economy gets back to normal. Yes, they will have taken on more debt, but the business model still works versus those whose business models may be in question, whether that's because they're involved with retail that should have a permanent change in behavior, commercial real estate that will have some clear permanent changes in behavior, business travel, for example. So what we're doing is we're saying, particularly in the last few months, As all spreads have widened because of concerns over losses and small recoveries, which ones are most likely to survive what we call the valley of death, just with a few more turns of leverage on them? And those are companies we're willing to continue to lend money to, as opposed to those whose business models may be suspect going forward. So you started to touch on it, but specifically then... 
Do we think that the spreads in the market today are compensating for default risk? I guess we then maybe divide that into two pieces. One, specifically the investment grade space. And Rick, maybe you take that, but then Steve, again, you know, if you want to just go a little bit deeper into high yield, do we think that we're being paid to take that risk in the high yield space? So in the investment grade space, our answer is no. What we're seeing in the investment grade space is obviously a backstop by the Fed. It's a combination of that. And then there's a positive tech rule that is going on in the corporate credit market right now. Those two things have really driven the recovery and spreads for corporate credit since March. Now, the reason why I say that we're not getting paid for that is because when you look at the fundamentals of the company, fundamentals are continue to get worse. So we've seen a tremendous amount and record amount of issuance on the corporate credit space. So leverage continues to go higher from a position of even pre-COVID when leverage already started at a fairly high level. So now the companies have added to that and potentially if this is a long, drawn-out recovery, you're going to see decreased revenues and leverage higher. So if it wasn't for the Fed, more than likely you would see credit spread significantly wider. But because of the Fed, that's just not the case. And at some point in time, this is what I just said a minute ago about law of unintended consequences. This just happens to be one of them. But at some point in time, something's going to have to change. Got it. And then, Steve, what do we think about the high-yield space? Well, again, on my earlier theme, we are less comfortable with some of the triple C names or some of the sectors like transportation, even at the higher levels of high-yield. But when you look at the higher-quality parts of the high-yield market, in double Bs, technology trading at about 275 over, media 300 over, healthcare two and a half over, that may not offer the historic amount of excess spread that you would hope to receive after defaults. But in this market where we expect the Fed to be on hold for many years, most of the decade, to be honest, we do think that there is an after-default return which compensates investors for holding those best names. So, yes, we can find things that we like to buy We understand that low yields will squeeze borrowers into those securities which they can own in a portfolio to generate returns above that 0.7% that you mentioned. So we still find things that are attractive. So we're seeing the opportunities within the market. We're seeing the disparity within ratings, companies with different profiles from a relative health perspective. Are the rating agencies doing a good job of staying on top of this stuff, though? Or is there just such a huge volume given the distress in the market that we think there's more to come? So I think that the rating agencies are taking a wait-and-see approach at this point in time. There's just still so much uncertainty out in the market about how the virus is going to progress and when we're going to get a vaccine. So the rating agencies are definitely taking the wait-and-see approach. Now, I think it's interesting what we're seeing with companies, and this is where we get into the issuer by issuer, I think a great example of potentially what companies are going to do is that CVS just came to market the other day, and it was very interesting to where here's a company that has a very high debt load and came in and tapped the market again, but they tapped the market for $4 billion, but then they turned around and tendered on the front end for $6 billion. 
So in effect, they're already thinking about that deleveraging and actually extending the maturities out. So it seems like there is some responsible behavior happening in some companies. Steve, what do you think? You know, it's a question that can't really be answered because when we think about the credit worthiness of a borrower, there's the ability to repay and the willingness. So right now we're focused on the ability to repay. And we measure that two ways. One is the amount of leverage. And with companies borrowing to offset cash flow shortfalls and to stockpile cash on the balance sheet, leverage measures are making new highs, all-time highs for given ratings. And I don't use the word all-time lightly, but When you look the other way, perhaps the more important way of measuring it is how well they can cover their interest costs. And Rick, you just talked about how CVS is terming out their debt, which may hurt us as lenders of our clients' money, having a long duration at a relatively narrow credit spread. But from the borrower's point of view, it takes any stress in the short run of being able to repay debt back. So... I started out by saying it's impossible to state with certainty because on one measure, leverage, clearly the rating agencies are behind the game. On another measure, interest coverage, companies are doing reasonably well. And, you know, we're living life out of sample. None of us have ever been in this environment before. Further to my remarks earlier, I'll just add one thing, you know, about companies and how we separate out who's going to be winners, or should I say survivors, there are no winners, survivors in the post-pandemic world, we're taking a very hard look at the affected industries where companies have been adding leverage by pledging what I would call their crown jewels, whether that's retail establishments pledging their real estate or cruise lines pledging their ships, for example, or famously an airline pledging its frequent flyer program, you you can only pledge the crown jewels once. So the risk is that we don't have an effective and safe vaccine in the early part of next year, that the cash flow shortfall lasts longer than originally anticipated, and those companies fall short of their ability to stay solvent over the course of the pandemic. Is that a fair answer, Josh? Yeah, it absolutely is. And actually, it brings up another question for me, which is that, you know, we're talking about things as broad as the possibility of a vaccine. Clearly, that's healthcare related, but exactly where that lands, we don't know. I know that in the platform, we look to take advantage of the breadth of skills evident across the entire platform. Some folks are more thematic, others are more bottom up. Today, though, I guess, Rick, you first, are the ideas that we're finding being driven issue by issue or bottom up, or are there broad themes that we're watching that are kind of driving opportunities? You know, Josh, even though we've always talked about bottom up, and bottom up is a great thing to talk about because it shows the work that you do on individual companies or deals, but it's also part of the thematic economic environment. Right. So there are certain things that from a bottom up perspective may be a good story, but it's still something that when you look at the overall economy, it's just not going to do very well going forward. So they really have to go hand in hand. Steve, what do you think? 
I think about your earlier call, are credit spreads adequately compensating for default risk? And you answered no. You know, I think about a company like BP, whose two-year bonds were trading at 90 cents on the dollar in the first quarter, and now those bonds yield a half a percent to maturity. I'm just using that as an example. And so I can see why you're saying, yeah, it doesn't really adequately compensate you for the risk that's involved. For us as bottoms-up pickers of bonds, we have to take into account the top-down, you know, the technical factor of Fed buying is overpowering fundamentals. So the thematic matters, but then you have to go out and buy individual securities. You have to populate portfolios with individual bonds. And there, because the Fed is distorting things, we have opportunities to go and buy structure portfolios from the bottom up to take advantage of the dislocation. So following on on that example, I'll just take another 30 seconds. Early in the process of recovery after the Fed came in, we wanted to structure portfolios with some of the riskier, higher-yielding borrowers in the short end, and then some of the safer but still much wider than historical issuers in the long end. And now, as spreads have compressed so much over time, we actually think that the opportunity is changing, and so we change portfolios. In this case, for example, by extending, by adding to spread duration, by selling some of those issues, I used BP as an example a moment ago, sell that, it's got nowhere to go, it could conceivably have risk to it, and find issuers that we believe have solid business models, you know, use a CVS as an example where curves are steep or in the financial sector where curves are steep to extend out the curve. So there's always opportunities for security selection. And ultimately, every bond gets into portfolio based on that kind of analysis. And the interest of keeping things flowing, why don't we play a quick speed round? So this could be for either one of you guys. Let's just have one of you answer because I don't want to have a fight at the end of the day. But next dollar, what do you buy? Equities. Wow. Fixed income CIO says equities, huh? Even at these levels? Even at these levels, short answer is next dollar? Yes. Of course, you go in having a balanced portfolio, and you don't put everything on equities. But at these levels, equities. What part of the market has been most overbid, given the chase for yield? So... To me, the clear winner is corporate credit, and that's, like I talked about, the backstop to the Fed. I think what's interesting, and I know this is a speed round, but I think this is an interesting point, is that agency mortgages have also been backstopped by the Fed, but it's different now than what it was in 2008-2009. In 2008-2009, and for several years after that, agency mortgage current coupons traded at about 60 of the Treasury. They are 25 to 30 wide of that, and they haven't come anywhere close to where they were prior to. But your dollar roll is still significantly high now, and that's why agency mortgages are still of good value. But if they ever get to the point to where spreads tightened in, there's some good relative value left there. Agree with Rich. Short, Short mortgages, cream, short corporate credit. I'm glad you guys are good at managing money because you're terrible at playing a speed round. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. 
I'll make it better. Bonds today. And I think you answered this in your intro, Steve. Bonds today, return generation or risk mitigation? Risk mitigation. Gubbies, risk-free return or return-free risk? I think it's both. I think in the short term, it's risk-free return, but eventually it's going to be return-free risk. Eventually is a long time from now. That's years away. All right. On a personal note, what's the one thing everybody should know about you? Steve, you first. Man, the one thing? I don't know the one thing everyone should know about me. I like to say that I bought my first stock in a stockbroker's office in 1974, and the cool thing about that was they didn't have an actual ticker tape. They had a digital ticker, modern technology. <laughs> All right. Rick, how about you? I don't think anybody should know this about me, but the one, I think, fun, most memorable, interesting thing I can come up with is the fact that I lived in a tent in the desert for a year for 12 months straight. So that's it. So we had a fixed income CIO who's buying stocks with his next dollar and a fixed income PM who lived in a tent in the desert for a year. That's fantastic. Rick, could you elaborate on the things that the Fed's not buying? You said before that the things the Fed's buying, both the Fed capital coming in as well as capital trying to chase the trade has made spreads tight. The opportunity is in many cases where the Fed's not buying. Where are you seeing value today? Right. So the Fed is basically buying corporate credit. They're buying treasuries. They're buying agency mortgages or TBAs. That's how they can go out and buy large quantities like they have. But they haven't been buying. There are some specified pool pass-through stories that actually has real call protection to them that is going to perform tremendously over the next six months or potentially longer with this refi wave that we have. The other thing that they're not buying is down in credit down the capital stack and securitized credit. So they are buying, or there is a TALC program, they're not specifically buying themselves, but there is a TALC program to buy AAA asset backs, but that does not cover <laughs> nearly everything that's issued in the structured credit market. If you look at how corporate credit has went from a wide of 373 OAS in March down to currently a 124 OAS, Agency mortgages, the dollar rule, like I said, is still trading special, which is good. But if you look at securitized credit, it widened out pretty significantly. And the OAS, even in investment-grade securitized credit, was trading as wide, depending on the bond, call it five to 600 OAS. They've recovered to maybe 250 to 300 OAS. But at 200, 250 to 300 OAS, that's significantly wide where corporate credit is. And so... What happens when the Fed is backstopping these markets, spreads really ratchet in. But like I said at the very beginning, spreads or bonds or equity prices don't go up forever. So as the index tightens to a certain level and whether or not we get back to year-to-date tights, that's questionable, but we're getting close to that. That means all those other bonds that have not participated are going to be the ones, they're the next things out there that are really going to outperform. And those are the things that we've really been focusing on over the last couple of months. Got it. I've actually got two questions about inflation. Steve, probably better suited for you, but with all this money being pumped into the market, how do we disentangle the opposing inflationary and disinflationary forces? Gold prices are clearly telling us something. Do we have a view and where do we see inflation over the next five years? Not a problem over the next five years. Let me add one caveat to that. 
We are, for all intents and purposes, seeing the beginnings of an experiment with what people call modern monetary theory, but what you and I could call printing money. And over the long run, that should be inflationary, clearly. However, there is so much slack in the global economy right now, and particularly in the U.S. economy, that inflation is not a concern given our economic forecast for years to come. I'm concerned about it in the second half of this decade, not at all in the first half of this decade. And that underpins our view that bonds represent a good risk-adjusted return. With inflation running at one or so, and bond yields, as Rick said, you know, you've got the aggregate index yielding over one, but with active management, the ability to generate a 2 to 3% return. That's part of why we remain positive on bonds, good risk-adjusted returns. Okay, next, has the Fed set a precedent with its aggressive action in the market that essentially removes the risk of a large tail event in the credit markets? Yes. Sorry, Rick, what would you say? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I agree 100%. Yes, absolutely. You're getting the speed round thing down pat now? Oh, there was a question I had and where where to go here. You had asked about gold and what yeah, gold You just said gold trying to tell us something as it relates to inflation. Do you have any comments there? You know, so a related question is, are we concerned that the U.S. dollar is losing its status as a reserve currency? Is that what gold is telling us? I think that there are concerns about the dollar as a reserve currency given changes that European nations have made to sew the United States of Europe together more closely. And given tensions between, frankly, the United States and China, we are seeing reserve diversification come out of Asia to the benefit of the euro over the dollar. But it's been said before, and I'll repeat it here, there is no country in the world with markets as liquid, as deep, as legally trusted, backed by the power of the U.S. military, the U.S. will retain its reserve currency status for a generation to come. I don't pretend to know longer than that. Great. Well, I want to thank both of you, Rick, Steve, for joining us today. I feel like it's been a real good call. We hope you enjoyed today's call. Thank you for your partnership, the trust you placed in us during these interesting times. For institutional wholesale professional clients and qualified investors only, not for retail use or distribution not for retail distribution, this communication has been prepared exclusively for institutional, wholesale, professional clients and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, 
credit and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. To the extent permitted by applicable law, we may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. Personal data will be collected, stored and processed by J.P. Morgan Asset Management in accordance with our privacy policies at https colon slash slash am dot jpmorgan.com slash global slash privacy. This communication is issued by the following entities in the United States by J.P. Morgan Investment Management Inc. or J.P. Morgan Alternative Asset Management Inc., both regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in Latin America for intended recipients use only by local J.P. Morgan entities, as the case may be, in Canada, for institutional clients use only, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Canada Inc., which is a registered portfolio manager and exempt market dealer in all Canadian provinces and territories except the Yukon and is also registered as an investment fund manager in British Columbia, Ontario, Quebec and Newfoundland and Labrador, in the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, U.K., Limited which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, in other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe S. A. Grave R.L., in Asia-Pacific, APAC, by the following issuing entities and in the respective jurisdictions in which they are primarily regulated, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Asia-Pacific, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds, Asia, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets, Asia, Limited, each of which is regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Singapore, Limited, Company, Reg, No. 197,601,586K, which this advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Taiwan, Limited, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Japan, Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association and the Japan Securities Dealers Association and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, Registration Number Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, Number 330, in Australia, to wholesale clients only as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, Commonwealth by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Australia, Limited, ABN 55143832080, AFSL 376919, Copyright 2020 J.P. Morgan Chase & Company All Rights Reserved.